Welcome to Grays in Hell, a podcast dedicated to kicking up dust around issues related to regenerative pasture-based agriculture. I'm your host, Neil Tafflinger, and this week I'm sharing the first part of a long conversation I had with Chris Baggett. Like a lot of people, Chris's views on food and agriculture were upended by the writings of Michael Pollan and Joel Salatin. Unlike most people, Chris had already had at least two careers worth of success before he launched Tyner Pond Farm with his wife, Amy. His first entrepreneurial venture was a small chain of dry cleaners, where he learned the value of email marketing. In the late 90s, after closing the dry cleaning business, Chris co-founded an email marketing platform called Exact Target. He left Exact Target in the mid-2000s to co-found another company, Compendium Blogware. In 2010, Chris and his wife founded Tyner Pond, an AGA and USDA organic certified farm about 20 miles east of Indianapolis, Indiana. In 2013, Exact Target and Compendium were both purchased by Salesforce and Oracle, respectively. Those exit events were not an excuse for the baggage to slow down. In fact, they're probably busier than ever, but we'll get into that here in a little bit. Let's start with the farm. Tell me a little bit about starting Tyner Pond. You don't have an agriculture background, and a farm is a really complex system to build from scratch. Um, One of the benefits of this kind of farming is it's very, very new. It's very innovation driven so there's not a lot that maybe experience can help you with and and oftentimes and it's usually been my experience in starting businesses and efforts that sometimes knowing a little bit is better than knowing a lot Um, I think people can easily get blinded by the things they know and doctrine and fact whereas going out and actually doing it pushing on conventional wisdom you know has been super beneficial for us how involved are you in Tyner Pond's daily operations um, you know, I originally started this effort uh, with a partner, um, Duffy Farrell, and we were good friends, and we had talked for a couple of years about things, and, you know, I got really, really motivated after reading The Omnivore's Dilemma and, you know, trying to solve this food problem, and Duffy was on board for the ride, so, you know, we sort of started this together. Unfortunately, he passed away. Thank you. Um, tragically, yeah, and it was uh, kind of through me to, I sort of had the town job to quit my job and and come out here and actually spend a year doing it. And, and you know, you build the team slowly. What do you need? Um, how do you offset what you do best and the most value you can add and somebody else has different talents and, um, you know, you start to assemble your team that way. Can you describe the approach or what you wanted Tyner Pond itself to accomplish? You know, I wanted it to be somewhat of a laboratory and a demonstration, right? You know, I'm, I'm very much an environmentalist. But I'm also a capitalist. You know, being able to put those things together and say, okay, you can actually build a good business and not, you know, degrade the earth and contaminate the Gulf of Mexico and, you know, all of those things that, that um, you know, I read The Omnivore's Dilemma, as I said. Um, the hero of that book is Joel Salatin. So, you know, that took me down the rabbit hole of reading all of Joel's books. And he had written five or six books at that time about various aspects of farming. You can farm grass-fed beef, chicken tractor, um, and, you know, made it all seem very, very accessible. I've been told to never ask how many head of cattle somebody owns, but uh, what is Tyner Pond currently producing and in what volume? Soil base is our primary constituent, right? You know, everything we try and do is about the soil. It used to be about the grass, you know, more than the animals, but now it really is about the soil. Our business consumes about two cattle a week and about 10 hogs a week. 
and pretty much as many chickens as we can raise. For processing? For processing. We sell online, tinerpondfarm.com, so you know, 90% of our business comes through people ordering online. Here locally, we deliver about 50 miles in a radius around the farm, so it covers, you know, fortunately for us, we have Indianapolis right down the road, so you know, we have a very good market, but you'd just be amazed at the kind of people who buy our products. Um, it's not it's not elite millennials, you know, that you might think. It's it's all kinds of people. I mean, we deliver, there's a trailer park on 40, you know, that you drive by and you either ignore or, you know, maybe you have a little sympathy for. And, um, and uh, the fact is we have three customers in that trailer park. Buying frozen meat, especially in volume, is something that I think my generation, most of us, at least in urban areas, it's not something that we've done. You know, like yeah. we don't know necessarily how to buy a quarter or a side. Well, and I should address that head on, right? Because that's really kind of anti our business model. What we want people to do is buy from us regularly, small quantities, just like you would from a store. You know, we have a hashtag we like to use called make this normal, right? Buying a freezer and throwing a half a cow in it isn't normal behavior. You know, saying on Sunday, which is usually our biggest shopping day of the week, okay, this week I'll be home three nights. I think I'll have chorizo one night and um, I'll get a ham and, you know, ground beef, you know, and, and you know, that, that's, that's... And the other days we'll order from Cluster Truck. And the other days you order from Cluster Truck, yes. But, um, but yeah, that's sort of the behavior we're looking for is, is you know, our food because... Everything is processed either here on the farm or in Knightstown, which is only 10 minutes away. That animal goes from farm to freezer in literally a couple of hours. Doesn't travel anywhere. And when we deliver it to you, you know, our encouragement is put this in the refrigerator. If you put it in the freezer, and I'm guilty of this, I have somebody gave me some frozen buffalo meat maybe a year ago. And I just opened my freezer last night. I was like, oh, I got to get to that, you know. But that's where food goes to be forgotten in the freezer. But if you put our food in your refrigerator, I mean, our chickens last two or three weeks in the refrigerator um, because they're just that fresh to begin with. You know, when you think about that, contrary to what people think of fresh meat, which comes from a feedlot in Oklahoma, processed in Iowa, then driven in semi-trucks of varying temperatures and called fresh, the idea is that's probably been frozen twice probably been thawed, probably got to 50 or 60 degrees at some point in its transition. And that entire journey to get that fresh meat to the grocery store is literally weeks, right? So you put something in your refrigerator, you expect it to last three or four days. So the food waste inherent in what I use air quotes is called fresh is incredible. Whereas a product like ours, which is local and frozen, but put it in your refrigerator, it's ready to eat tomorrow and it will live in your refrigerator for two or three weeks. A lot less food waste, a lot more economical, and a lot better product. How involved are you in operations here? Like, is it fingertip controls? Are you getting you know reports regularly, or are you here when you're in town doing stuff? So yeah, I spend my weekends here for sure. My wife is very much engaged day to day, and she's really the driver. Especially we're, um, you know, as you know, we're American Grass-Fed certified. We just became through with the help of American Grass-Fed organically certified. Um, I believe we're the largest organically certified farm in Indiana. Uh, it may not be true, but I believe it to be true. And we're in the process of becoming a savory hub. But my wife, Amy, is really the main driver of the farm as I focus more on, right now, the demand side, if you will. What do you raise here? 
So this is one of five farms that we have in the area. And our primary business are grass-fed beef, pasture-raised hogs. In season, we raise meat chickens, turkeys, and um, we dabble in eggs. But we've never really been very successful at that yet. You know, our primary 2020 goal for the farm itself is to dramatically increase our own production. Um, you know, we've been kind of learning the ropes. And, you know, we like a lot of things. You take two steps forward, one step back. Um, you learn the people part of the business is interesting that, you know, you've got to find the right teammates that get on with the vision. And sometimes people you start with aren't the people that, you know, take you to the next level. So, you know, we're going through some transitions right now with that. But our goal for 2020 is to dramatically increase production. Right now, we contract with other farmers. Uh, we have kind of a protocol where, um, you know, these are the kind of criteria we have. But with this land... And with the farming methods we're using, especially now that we're really getting involved in the whole holistic management, regenerative ag mentality and, and process, um, we think we can increase our production substantially. What's Tyner Pond's relationship like with the rest of this area? When I first got into this business, you know, I was very much a fire and brimstone you know, without really understanding the problem. And the problem is that farmers will grow what makes them money and farmers are not setting out to become bad stewards of the land right that's not their intention um, but they need a product that can move off the property right and if i grow corn 100 percent chance that corn is going to leave my property and somebody will pay me for it if i go into grass-fed beef first of all i have a several year transition and there is no guarantee that those animals will be sold what we're trying to show here and what we're doing slowly but surely is creating a model and creating a, a demand. There's a great book called um, In Meat We Trust. came out a couple of years ago. The author kind of goes through the meat industry, everything from Montana ranches in the 1820s or, you know, like Lonesome Dove kind of things <laughs> to railroads to Chicago to, to the other white meat. And, you know, her general thesis is that this is very much consumer driven, right? You know, the farmers used to farm one way. The consumers said, we want the other white meat. We want lean, fat is bad. We bought into the argument that fat is bad and the farmers responded in kind. It's not necessarily the farmer's fault, right? It really comes down to the consumers supporting this kind of thing. And that's really for us and, you know, a little bit from my background that has really been helpful, which is the internet, right? And understanding the internet and understanding how to market and sell. And as I said, most of our business is handled online, but we don't ship. We deliver like the milkman, right? You order on Monday, your food will come on Wednesday. And um, getting consumers who are used to ordering on their phones or used to ordering on their computers and used to having packages delivered to them that may sit on their porch until they come home from work, like that was very, very foreign 10 years ago it's becoming more and more commonplace with everything. And now can we get consumers to continue to buy more? Because, you know, we work with at least 11 other farmers in this area to supply us all kinds of things, non-GMO corn and soybeans for feed, um, feeder pigs, finished pigs, finished chickens, finished turkeys, eggs. All of those things are coming from the local community. So we built this small but growing business that is now, you know, really rejuvenating a rural community, right? And that's, that's kind of the whole point. What can you tell me about the, that economic ripple effect that you've had um, 
on your corner of, of Hancock County. One of the things we're really driving for is cost, right? By taking cost out of the system, we should in fact become the low cost producer, right? You know, right now we're very small volumes, you know, two steers a week. You know, that doesn't supply one grocery store in Greenfield, Indiana. But the idea that our inputs grow themselves naturally and that we're very light touch and there are no chemicals or, you know, all of that, no middlemen, no seed, no plowing, no harrowing, no furrowing, no, you know, all of that ultimately should make a pasture-raised product less expensive. And the idea that you're delivering it, now you don't need this whole entire infrastructure of, you know, a grocery store and, and you know, gives the consumer vastly more choice, you know. I mean, you're familiar, I'm sure, with the long tail theory, you know, yeah. of, you know, I don't have to worry about Walmart curating the kind of food I eat, right? Yeah. I can choose from any vendor I want, so. You've said that after you got Tyner Pond running, you saw a disparity between what you could sell, which is steaks, and what you couldn't, ground beef. And you decided to create your own demand by creating a burger restaurant. So then in the span of five years, you opened a farm-to-curb drive-in uh, in Greenfield called The Mug that sells Tyner Pond products. Then you opened what you call the Pasture to Pub Bar, Grigsby's Station, also in Greenfield. Then you purchased a building on the east side of Indianapolis and opened a second mug, a Tyner Pond grocery store, and another bar, Bonnet Tavern. The grocery store and the tavern have since closed. I've always been curious, uh, since you're so focused on digital markets and direct consumer sales, how this very local dependent brick and mortar strategy fits in um, and if it really I guess what the what the geographic boundaries of your goals really are are you trying to feed you know Warren Township and Hancock County or are you trying to feed the world yeah I'm trying to feed the community right which starts in Hancock County but really extends through central Indiana um, you know, if you think of an urban center surrounded by agriculture, you know, and the big thing that struck me was, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Ken Meter, but he wrote this food paper. He's from the University of Wisconsin, but he, um, he wrote this paper called um, Hoosier Farmer, like Hoosier, Indiana Hoosier, but Hoosier Farmer Finding Food in Foodland. And, and basically he talks about the agricultural system using Indiana as an example where you know, we eat $8.8 billion worth of meat a year in this state, and barely any of it is coming directly from Indiana. Yeah. I mean, almost none of it, like maybe $10 million sure, it's worth. It's not even coming from the United States. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, right? It's just, um, you know, 97% of organic food is imported from other countries, right? So you're going through the store looking at this organic label and saying, really, do I, do I believe that northern Mexico is, you know, holding to the same standards I am, you know, um, or I require. And secondly, the whole globalization of this, you know. the carbon footprint of it defeat the purpose of... Yeah. You know, I had, um, he was governor, Mike Pence came here, you know, and one of the things we talked about was, you know, you drive around these rural communities and just look up at the facades and you're like, man, these places used to be prosperous. What happened? Well, first of all, we took away agriculture, Right. So then we didn't need the local banks, we didn't need the local stores, and you know, and just the whole thing that, that, but it all started with food. To answer the question you asked, 
Um, you're exactly right. We started off digital only. We were selling animals and consumers are happy to buy bacon and pork chops and, you know, very recognizable and easy to prepare cuts of meat, which is great, right? You know, the idea that you're going to take home a pork shoulder roast more than once a year or twice a year, you know, is kind of far-fetched. So we wound up stockpiling and paying for storage for every steer gives me 400 pounds of of ground beef you know i'm selling my fillets in an instant selling my bacon in an instant so i'm processing animals to keep up with that demand so this little mug you know became available it was called the frosty mug and it was just one of these over 50 years dying drive-ins and we rehabilitated that we brought in a, a, a chef and created a menu that was recognizable but high quality and um, because we're vertically integrated you know i can sell a quarter pound grass-fed beautiful hamburger for four dollars and ninety cents or sixty cents or whatever the price is that in a city might cost fifteen or seventeen dollars so and that really helped balance out the farm if you will and then Grigsby Station was just another extension of that the relationship being vertically integrated in that you know the chef at Grigsby's can call and talk to Amber who manages the fulfillment out of Tyner Pond and say what do you need to get rid of and she can say I have 400 chicken quarters. So he, can, he actually will build a menu around exactly. what's available at the farm. Yes. But, you know, we still mm-hmm. focus on hamburger and pulled pork and, you know, those are the, and sausage, right? Those are the things that people want to really help their farmer eat a lot of ground product, right? Because the farmer really isn't struggling to sell bacon. You know, we did an event out here and, um, and there was a kind of Indianapolis celebrity chef that it's going to like, you know, we're going to eat nose to tail. I need 400 pig ears. I'm like, dude, you are not helping me, <laughs> you know, with 400 pig ears, right? That means I have to kill 200 pigs yeah. and I'm going to be left with how much sausage? Why don't you make sausage? Which, of course, he wouldn't do. And, you know, it just, but that's the whole, you know, how do you take this from being this esoteric, you know, I'm eating pig noses to, you know, more sausage. But um, the other thing with the restaurants is I tried to sell wholesale. And what I found was that the restaurants that were inclined to buy local product like we make were already buying local product like we make, right? And, you know, my entire mission here is to make this pie big and normal. And, you know, I love Greg Gunthrop with all my heart, you know, and he's, his business is selling wholesale. And, you know, the idea that I would come in and compete with Greg Gunthrop and say, I'll do it for a dollar less or, you know, it just doesn't accomplish anything. So, you know, you add that up with, now between our farmers, our fulfillment and delivery folks, um, the people we use e-commerce, um, and our restaurant employees, you know, just here in Greenfield within a 20-mile radius, you know, there are 75 people making their living off of, or some of their living, even if they're a part-time bartender, off of the efforts of this farm. So as an entrepreneur myself, um, I learned early that failure is a much better teacher than success. Uh, and since not everything you've launched has continued and thrived, what have you learned from the respective successes and, and failures of your different ventures in food? You know, you have to really focus on things you like and are passionate about, um, and you have to have really good people. We really liked Irvington. We were really excited. Irvington is where we had the second mug. We opened the grocery store and Bana, and you know, we kind of got into Bana and the grocery store for a little bit of the wrong reasons. You know, I had the building right, so it's like here's a nail, 
you know, what's a hammer for this? Capacity, so. Yeah. So we know we knew for sure we were going to build a mug, and the mug is, like I said, really, really helpful because it is primarily a hamburger, pulled pork, hot dog, you know, all things that help us move ground product. The bar, because we love Grigsby's, and we thought maybe we could replicate that there. It's a different market. It's a different place. You know, we really didn't have our pulse on the culture of Irvington like we did here. And the grocery store just was not in our wheelhouse at all. You know, our meat is frozen. People come into a grocery store expecting, un and I don't even like to use the word fresh, <laughs> but unfrozen, yeah. right? And we're just not set up to provide unfrozen. And, you know, the whole grocery store business in a decline, you know, where things are moving towards e-commerce. Um, I had a great opportunity. We actually weren't looking um, to necessarily close them, but I met the Warner Brothers, you know, from Kocheck and yeah. Provider. And, um, you know, and I met them on a completely different topic. And they had mentioned they were looking for spaces in Irvington. They lived in Irvington. And I was like, these guys will be way better operators than we are. And because I own the building, you know, actually part of their rent is using Tiner Pond product. Hmm. So it it's still accomplishes my goal, especially because Strange Bird, if you've been there or, or know of it, it's great. It's kind of like a tiki bar theme. They've just done a beautiful job with it. But it's very chicken and whole chicken focused. And as a farmer, it's great for me to sell whole chickens, right? You know, um, you know, I, it, it is not great for me to sell boneless, skinless chicken breasts, which we sell a lot of. Yeah. Um, but we have but to only two for every bird. <laughs> we have to charge an inordinate amount, and then we've got to figure out what to do with the rest of it. So, again, online I can sell boneless, skinless chicken breasts all day long. I'm left with mostly chicken quarters um, that then we have to push through other means. You know, smoke them or sell them through Grigsby's is, you know, we're working on this new Hawaiian chicken that's going to be amazing. So, Husk, uh, one of your businesses that we haven't really talked about um, was a frozen artisanal food business. And you've said that it failed because you didn't understand how freezer space is allotted and restocked in supermarkets. Since you're such a passionate uh, proponent of direct consumer sales, uh, can you talk to me a little bit about that business? And if you attempted or considered pivoting to direct consumer sales and and maybe just why husk didn't work out and what you learned from it husk is an interesting thing um it has worked because you know i partnered with nick carter who's a spectacular young man great entrepreneur you know nick and i were met on facebook and you know i could see he was interested in food he had a company meet the rabbit also had a tech background so i invited him to meet and we met and we were just talking about distribution and 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 Nick made a statement that I believed at the time and now I think neither of us believe but we did believe at the time which was that the problem with local food wasn't a distribution problem I was talking about online marketing I own the domain farmersmarket.com it's like this domain looking for a business model a million organic searches a month come to farmersmarket.com um, the people searching farmers market right um, and Nick was like, you know, the problem isn't distribution. We have a perfectly di good distribution system in this country. It's called the grocery store. The problem is getting food into the grocery store and closing that gap between the farmer and that processing of local food. How do we process local food that's inexpensive enough and packaged so it can actually fit into the way a grocery store needs it to fit? So we spent, um, we raised money. Um, we spent a lot of money building kind of this big factory over on Mount Comfort Road. 
and we made this amazing product. We contracted with farmers who were happy to supply us with corn. We had that corn showing up at six o'clock in the morning. By four o'clock in the afternoon, it was frozen in bags. Um, and it was delicious. If you ever had it, it was fantastic. Yeah. We quickly went out and Nick was sort of the salesman and went out and we were in 300 or 400 grocery stores all the way to St. Louis and Chicago. And the real issue became the whole restocking. First of all, we're selling a very inexpensive product. So even if it was the best sweet corn in the world that we were charging, and I can't remember the price, $2.99 a bag, you're sitting next to $0.99 cent a bag. And Kraft is calling it bird's eye naturals, right? So there's a problem there. Kraft also has a semi and four people that come in and they stock the shelves. And grocery stores don't stock the shelves anymore. So it would come off the, the shelves quickly. I was very fortunate. Have you ever heard of Udi's um, gluten-free bakery? I was very fortunate to be part of that project when they were just getting kicked off. And they did an amazing job on social media creating demand for this product. And hey, we're coming to, you know, the Buckhead, you know, whatever the grocery store name is down there, Harris Teeters, and, and these moms would be clamoring for it because it was a great product that solved a real problem. And I thought, we'll use this playbook for marketing where we'll create this demand, but it's not solving as big a problem for the consumer. Whereas if you have a gluten intolerant child yeah. and you can't make them a peanut butter sandwich, that is really important. You know, so the grocery stores just wouldn't stock it. We had a competitor, which we sell through Tyner Pond now, Souders. And Souders, you know, I think they approached it much more intelligently. They started small. They started local. It's a great product. They're doing the exact same thing we were doing. And, you know, they've kind of grown more organically, where we kind of went in and tried to be big fast yeah. and, um, and just didn't, didn't work from a business model standpoint. What can I do this week as someone who's not a farmer, not directly involved in agriculture? What can I do this week to help regenerate my health, my community, my economy, the soil? You have to support this model, right? Which means sharing content, posting, commenting, and buying and having your friends buy. You know, my, my email this morning to, you know, we have a list of almost 9,000 people was about gift cards, right? You know, or we have these online gift certificates, $25 minimum. You know, it, this In Meat We Trust is a really interesting book because you close it and she's a defender of the system, right? And she basically says, this is the consumer's fault. And that was sort of, aha, of course it is, right? If, if I'm not buying this way, if I'm not insisting on this, if I'm not supporting this, then what's this poor coin farmer supposed to do? Right. I mean, if he can't sell it, he can't grow it. Right. And so, you know, it really becomes a consumer driven thing. You have to make this normal that I'm going to go to Tyner Pond Farm or anyone else you want and and click a button that says, yes, deliver to me. And I'm going to trust that it's going to be in this bag and it's going to be insulated with a frozen pack and it's going to be on my porch when I come home. And and also don't be fooled by what they're selling at Whole Foods or, you know, a big problem with a lot of local farmers lately is so many of these big grocery stores are now getting into this space. You know, we had a really good farm here whose name I can't remember that was selling grass fed beef to Whole Foods for like five years. And Whole Foods started buying their grass-fed beef from Uruguay, you know, and right, thinking about the carbon footprint and, you know, maybe it's grass-fed, maybe it isn't. You know, California and the, the desertification of California and food farms in the San Joaquin Valley are turning into alfalfa farms, which require tremendous amounts of water. That alfalfa is being pelletized 
and then shipped to Australia where they're feeding it to cattle in the desert and then shipping that meat back to us as grass-fed beef, right? You know, there's a grass-fed beef burger place in Broad Ripple and the grass-fed beef that you're buying in almost every chain restaurant is Australian grass-fed beef that is growing in a desert being fed alfalfa pellets that isn't growing food anymore, which is now forcing us to buy our vegetables from Latin American countries that it's not solving any problem, right? It's just bizarre. And we grow great grass here. Like even West, you know, Western United States, they don't have the grass we have here. We have perfect grass growing conditions. The best thing you can do is buy, just buy. Buy locally every chance you get because then that farmer will become more prosperous and they will expand and they will recruit other farmers. You know, the best thing that can happen is there's more demand than there is production and forcing more production. Thanks, Chris, for taking the time to talk with us. Grays in Hell is a production of American Grass-Fed Association. If you want to hear more interviews like this, you can subscribe, rate, and review Grays in Hell wherever you get your pods. To learn more about AGA and find a certified farm or ranch near you, go to americangrassfed.org and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find those links in the show notes, along with links to learn more about specific topics discussed in this episode.